You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to Beer52.com slash party that's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party, and cover just £5.95 for the postage, and you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month, Beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer 52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com slash party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to the political party. I hope this finds you well. I hope you're managing to have a summer of some description at the moment, even if it's just poking your head out the window and getting a bit of sun on it. Um, this time of year makes you realise all your plans have gone up in smoke, so hopefully seeing a bit more of the sun, depending on where you listen to this podcast, of course, um, hopefully that's helped cheer you up a little bit. Politics continues, and today I'm joined in the second of two Lib Dem leadership specials by Ed Davey. We had Leila Moran on the show last week, and her opponent, Ed, joins me today, and we talk about a number of things as you would expect, uh, an assessment of the Lib Dems' role in that coalition. And we also have a discussion about how Lib Dems should feel about that time uh, in office and how they should approach it and whether it's time to move on. And also, of course, um, an assessment of the government's handling of the current crisis, but also what the liberal approach to uh, any future public health crisis would be and indeed what sorts of liberal values Ed Davey holds. But I began by asking Ed the same question that I began by asking Leila last week. What's it like trying to run a leadership contest during a lockdown? Well, um, it's pretty family friendly because, you know, when I was uh, campaigning last time uh, with my friend Joe, we were traveling all over the country and, um, you know, it was quite, quite tough, actually. Um, and Aberdeen went to middle of Wales, went to Plymouth, we're all over the country. Um, and although that's actually fun because you actually met people, um, you were away from your, your family a lot. I got two kids, uh, John Nelly and obviously my wife, Emily, and um, I would be obviously away for a long time. So for me, uh, Standing here in front of the camera in Surbiton, it's a lot easier and I get to see them. So I get the best of both worlds. I'm not complaining. No, I lived in Surbiton for many years. It's one of the best places on earth. I mean, the the pubs alone, there's so many pubs there. The Fly, the Duke, the Vic, the Duke of Buckingham, the Spring Grove, the Lamb. 
there was the saucy kettle back then. I don't know if you ever went there. No, the saucy line? kettle's closed down. Oh, oh, that's a shame. Yeah, no, but it, it, it's, there's a nice cafe there. But um, no, we, we have got some really, really nice pubs and it's a lovely area. It's very safe. It's you know, very easy to get to London, um, out to the countryside um, and lovely people. And there's a slight, people are a bit surprised, there's a slight alternative thing about it. Yes. Um, it, it, there's a bit of a groove going on. So we've got, got a few people who do some weird and wacky things. <laughs> so we have Serbs and Ski Sunday. What? Where we, we, we create a ski slope on what's called St. Mark's Hill, going down the hill into, into Surbiton. And um, I always say it's our, it's our attempt to win the Winter Olympics uh, for Surbiton. Um, but we, we ski. Uh, but we don't ski on, on the snow or anything like that. We have ice blocks. So the guy who organised it, <laughs> he organises ice blocks. And you, they tie your shoes to it. And you go down this slope. And the other way, you, you do actually are able to go in a, in a bath. So if you go onto YouTube, you can see YouTubes of me skiing down <laughs> the slope in Surbiton, Surbiton Ski Sunday. I can't believe I missed this when I lived there. Is this safe? Well, if you go at my speed, it is. I mean, um, <laughs> they, they have races and I, I'm afraid I don't rise to that particular challenge. Um, but uh, I don't think there's any injuries. The St. John Ambulance turn up, though, just in case. So great people. Um, but, you know, we, we did some wacky things and um, we created a few urban myths. Uh, so uh, Leffy Ganson, the, um, goat, uh, the goat boy of seething wells. Against the giant of Thames of Deaton. What? Um, we have a sardine festival, which um, goes back all of about eight years, but we think it goes back to the middle Middle Ages. So you know, we have some fun. I mean, it's a great place. <laughs> it, it was uh, you were the MP there for most of the time that I was there. There's a brief period when you lost your seat in, in, in yeah, 2015, yeah, yeah. and then yeah. got it back in 2017 when James Barry was the MP for, for Kingston Surbiton. I mean, it's an area you, you've lived in that you know well. How hard was it? I mean, it was only two years, but you, you don't know that you're going to take the seat back. How, how much did that defeat hurt in 2015? It hurt a bit because I, you know, I, I enjoyed representing the area. And um, you know, politics has become my life. And I, I like the cut and thrust of it. I like being able to achieve things for people, whether your constituents mm -hmm. fighting for them or, or campaigning on big national international issues but you know to be honest I wasn't if I'd lost by myself and I've been the only Lib Dem MP to lose I, I think I'd be very disappointed but let's face it a lot of us lost and um, so you, you didn't you didn't feel it was just you you felt it was you know the, the a wider thing um, and if I'm honest with you I spent more time with my family um, uh, created a business where I was doing quite a lot in renewable energy, which is you know one of my uh, big big things. Um, so I, you know, it, it didn't it didn't harm me, and um, it was actually a tough decision to stand again in 2017, if I'm honest with you, because um, you know I was seeing more of my family uh, having a less stressful time, uh, not working as hard, um, but I was so so upset about Brexit was so cross about what the Tories were doing. And um, I immodestly thought I was the best placed person to win the seat back and beat the Tories. And that's what I'm about, beating Tories. And um, uh, so with my support of, of Emily, my wife, I, I took it on again. 
So actually, it sounds like it's not as if in 2015 you said, right, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to just keep campaigning and I'm going to come back at the earliest opportunity. It sounds like there is a world in which perhaps you wouldn't have stood again in 2017. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't nailed on. I mean, I did actually keep campaigning a bit, um, you know, and I helped, you know, draft leaflets, good Liberal Democrat style. I was sort of almost like my, the constituency campaign organiser. It's not that hard, is it? A bar chart, a picture of a horse. <laughs> not in space. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it, it's, it's not hard. The point is, to be honest, uh, Matt, it's just time, really, isn't it? And But I, I decided I'd... I was still keen to promote um, my Liberal Democrat colleagues, council candidates here, uh, win local elections. I mean, actually, here's a story. After we, um, I lost election in uh, 2015, uh, sadly, one of our councillors died and there was a by-election, literally just a week or two after she died, just a week or two after the election. And so uh, weeks after having lost my seat, I was out campaigning. I was out knocking on doors. I, I met a, a new member of the party then, a certain Sarah Olney. And I thought, uh, this lady's got a lot of talent. And um, I persuaded her to think about standing for, the, for Parliament. And she won the by-election in Richmond Park. But my overall point, I'm getting sidetracked. My overall point was, um, I was out campaigning pretty quickly after 2015. But I, I hadn't decided what I was going to rerun then. It just, you know, uh, politics is a bit of a bug. And I'm committed Liberal Democrat. I, I joined the party in 1989 when we were 4% in the opinion polls, it wasn't a career move, you know, <laughs> I, you know, people say you're in it for yourself. If you're in a Liberal Democrat, right, you cannot be in it for yourself because you can't guarantee you're going to win, right? And uh, uh, you, you're in it because you believe in it. And, and I believe passionately in liberalism, you know, political liberalism, personal liberalism, social liberalism, economic liberalism. And, and I think our, our philosophy is more relevant and more needed than ever before. You know, we see these nationalists, these populists, these authoritarian. We see the tensions between China and the US. We see Brexit. We see Trump. Blimey, do I want some liberalism back? <laughs> I think a lot of people do. Um, you, mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned Brexit as, as perhaps the reason that, that made you want to come back so quickly. Brexit is, is effectively done and dusted. We, it looks like we'll leave um, effectively with a no-deal Brexit this year. As Brexit as a political issue for you, though, and, and for the party, should you lead it, where do the Lib Dems stand? Because obviously, revoke was difficult, but, but the sense of stopping Brexit made the party popular for a while. Do, do the Lib Dems say, look, it's over for now? Do the Lib Dems say, we go to the next election saying, actually, we're the party that are going to just, in a gentle way, it won't be our top priority, but we'll always be making the case that Britain should rejoin the EU. Well, I'll tell you what case we will make, and that's for cooperation. Uh, liberals are internationalists. Liberal Democrat is the internationalist party. We believe in working with other countries because we see, A, that's in our mutual interest, and B, we, have, we value every human being wherever they live. And that international view, that liberal view about the, the quality of respect you pay to every human being, um, really pushes you down the road of, of cooperation with other countries for the for everyone's benefit and what i want to do if i'm leader is to make the case for international cooperation and european cooperation and show that you know if you want to get out of this appalling recession create jobs actually you want to trade 
and you want the best trading relations possible. And Michael Goh's plan of investing billions of pounds in, in bureaucracy, I call it the Tory Brexit tax of seven billion pounds a year on our exporters. That's not very clever. Um, and we should cooperate more. And you know, climate change, which is obviously one of my, my big issues, you have to you have to cooperate, right? You know, if we were the best country, if we got to net zero carbon tomorrow, we're only two percent of greenhouse gas emissions. So we'll still fry. You know, uh, we've got to work with others. And I was very proud of, when I was a cabinet minister for energy and climate change. I led I led uh, climate change diplomacy across Europe because we were at the table. And it, 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 I got involved in some very detailed negotiations to get much more ambitious climate change targets in Europe. And everyone knew that I was a sort of bunny hugger on one end, you know, the tree hugger. Now the other end was the Polish guy, because obviously Poland likes to burn lots of coal. Marsan Korolec, lovely guy. And um, everyone knew that if we agreed, the whole of Europe could agree. And you know, I fought really hard. The Tories didn't want me to do it. Um, they tried to stop me, but I fought hard and I, and I won the deal. And um, you know, not a lot of people know about it actually. But it's one of the proudest things I've ever done. Well, this is a this is a, this is the right platform uh, and the right time for you to, to be able to um, remind people or, or perhaps tell people for the first time about uh, an important achievement. But what about the political issue of our relationship with the European Union and that sense of loss that people who voted Remain and certainly politicians that campaigned for Remain have? Just, I suppose it's more about your instincts for where the country is and where the British people are. Do you think in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, you can imagine a case where we have another referendum to rejoin? I can imagine that, absolutely. Um, I hope it's possible. But, um, you know, Europe for me is now a heart and head issue. My heart will never leave Europe. I'm passionate pro-European. I've seen that it's in the interest of every single person in this country and indeed the interest of the world. And when you've got the geopolitics of US versus China, you need a a block of countries who, you know, uphold democracy, uphold human rights, who are saying, come on, let's let's manage this process of superpower status change. And we need to be at the table, the Germans, the French, the Italians, the Spanish, the Poles and everyone else. And um, therefore, I can't not want us to be there, but as a political leader listening to the British people, I think if you went to them at the next election and said, oh, you know, by the way, we should rejoin tomorrow, I think they'll just blow you a raspberry, a bit like they did to us on Revoke. Because I think think they'll think that you've not listened to them. And therefore, I think what pro-Europeans have to do, passionate pro-Europeans like myself, we have to build the case. We have to build the case for cooperation and on so many things. I mean, the pandemic, COVID, why aren't we cooperating more on that? I mean, it's just like lunacy. Why aren't we cooperating, you know, on things like tackling criminals? You know, the worst criminals in our world, they're international, right? International crime gangs, international drug gangs, international gangs who, who traffic people, sex traffic, disgusting criminals. They don't just operate, you know, out of South London. It's not the craterings anymore. It's, a, it's this massive uh, international terrorism, international criminals, and you can only break them by working internationally. And, you know, the Tories, by what they've done, they've gone soft on law and order, in my view. The Tories are allowing criminals and terrorists and, you know, some of the worst people in our world 
to get off the hook because the cooperation that we've had in the European Union won't be as strong. So, you know, I want to do this gradually because I think you've got to take people gradually. And as they see the problems with Brexit, as they emerge, that we're not able to cooperate so much on tackling the criminals, we're not able to cooperate so much on tackling climate change, bloody, 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 gradually you can shift opinion. But people are naive if you think that you can do that overnight. It's just not going to happen overnight. So with Revoke then, I mean, you, you were one of the most senior uh, politicians the Lib Dems had at the last election. With Revoke, were you involved in those discussions and, and did at the time you think this is going to be really difficult? Yeah, I was involved in discussions. Um, it became much more of a, of a front foot issue for us than I had expected to. I thought it was more of a back pocket issue. I thought our front pocket issue would be the second referendum. Yeah. But I think, you know, for whatever reason, Jodie's wanted, and by the way, she's a friend of mine and I'm deeply loyal to her. So let's be really clear about this. I'm not going to give you the insights of private conversations. I'm just not going to do that. Oh, go on. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm just not. It's not how you operate. Not how I operate. But she decided that she wanted to say, you know, um, I'm standing to be prime minister. And when she made that decision, then the revoke became more significant because that's what she do. And and I think that there's two combined together to create a difficult narrative. And the great thing about the second referendum was that it enabled us to say to leave voters, well, you know, we're going to give you a choice, but you, you don't want to vote for the Tories because look at what they're doing on social justice, look what they're doing on education, on the public services. You can still vote for us. Um, and when Revote became not back pocket, but front page, that you couldn't, you couldn't have that conversation. Because Brexit was such a huge opportunity for the Lib Dems at the time at which the election came. Millions of people particularly Remainers, obviously. <laughs> I don't think too many leavers were attracted by the second referendum or the, or the revoke message. But basically Labour voters who Corbyn and alienated, and that was millions of people, were up for grabs. And they were looking at the Lib Dems um, in that way. And I just wonder whether, even without revoke, would, would we still have got the, the same election result? Was there something in it that actually, when it came down to it, people knew either Corbyn or Johnson were going to be Prime Minister, and we're in danger of overanalyzing the effect of that revoke message. I think there's something in that, you know. Um, you know, we, I co-commissioned the general election review for us, which was a sort of no holes barred, no punches pulled analysis of where we've gone wrong, not just this election, but more broadly. And, you know, it, it doesn't talk about the coalition. It doesn't talk very much about revoke. It talks about lots of other things. And for me, one of the things that, not just the general election review, but my own feeling is the problem was Jeremy Corbyn. He was the biggest, because in a lot of our Tory Lib Dem fights where we thought we were going to do a lot better, people who were from the conservative side of the political fence, who were passionate Remainers, who hated Johnson and his uh, uh, Brexit position, they worried about Jeremy Corbyn more. And they had an invidious position. You know, I just have this mental image in my mind of all these Tory voters with lots of clothes pegs on their noses going to vote Tory, um, but only because of Corbyn. And, um, you know, 
the flip side of that is in the north where you know labor got a bit of a pounding because the get brexit done message combined with lots of uh, anti-labor stuff all about corbyn and his position on defense his position on terrorism and all the rest of it that was very effective in swinging you know lifelong labor supporters to the tory cause so um i know uh labor party members um particularly the momentum ilk won't like me for saying it but corbyn was one of the biggest factors in brexit and in the loss of the last election no doubt about it so the challenge for the Lib Dems now, obviously, is that Boris Johnson still remains. So you, you, you quite an easy um, opponent, really, for, for gathering liberal left um, uh, people against. But Keir Starmer is, is, is the crucial change in British politics in, in the last year. And he has a different reputation to Jeremy Corbyn. He's more effective. Uh, he looks more like a prime minister in waiting. Isn't the danger that he's just basically going to totally colonise the entire liberal left wing of politics and leave you with nowhere to go? Uh, Not at all. Um, I welcome uh, Keir Starmer's strong start as Labour leader. And I have absolutely no problem if he agrees with Liberal Democrats on lots of things. I hope he agrees with us on electoral reform, but you know he may agree with us on climate change, on public service investment, on wealth redistribution, you know whatever it is, and I would really welcome that. And um, for me, the only thing is it's early days, right? I don't know whether he's really in control of the Labour Party or the momentum still have their hands on the levers of power in the party. Uh, he hasn't told me, told anyone what his program is yet, so it's still early days. However. Um, I am, I think, for centre-left politicians like myself, progressive politicians like myself, um, it's great news that the Labour Party's got to a position where I think sanity will prevail and the focus will not be fighting within the Labour Party and how ultra-left you can be, but how can we beat the Tories? That's the challenge, right? For Liberal Democrats, for Labour Party, for whoever, if you're on the centre-left and progressive, how do we beat the Tories and the current position reminds me of when I first got active when I was working for the party as their economics advisor back in the 90s it reminds me of that period you know we'd had you know years of Tory rule the expectation of the 92 election that Labour might win were dashed it was you know everyone was deeply depressed and then Blair came along and uh, Ashdown was, you know, who was my is my hero, by the way, uh, was leading the party. And um, he, he, he initially thought that Blair was going to steal our clothes and was a problem. And he gradually realised, actually, I think a bit like Starmer might be, having an electable Labour leader was good for the Liberal Democrats. Because and it's really quite a clear analysis. In the seats that we can take from the Tories, that Labour could never take, seats like mine, Labour will never ever take Kingston Serpenton, right? Um, and lots of our seats are like that. Um, but we get collateral damage when the Labour Party has a left-wing leader. And, you know, historically, I would say that's Corbyn, even uh, Ed Miliband, who was caricatured as left-wing, Neil Kinnock caricatured as left-wing, 
and Michael Foot. Those sort of Labour leaders give us collateral damage. But a Blair or potentially Starmer, let's wait and see, to those Tory voters in seats like we're contesting with them who want to vote Liberal Democrat but are worried who's the Prime Minister. If, there's, if the Labour Prime Minister is, or Labour candidate for Prime Minister is frankly not credible, then they'll vote Tory instead. So Starmer for me, early days, and I'm not going ahead of myself, um, I've been around politics for too long to, you know, uh, steamroll into something, but early days, he holds out that prospect, that collateral damage that we get could be removed. So you, know, you talk about this, your whole life's political work really has been opposing Tories. How did it feel then to be sat in a cabinet with them? I mean, was that something you I ever... Was <laughs> did I you ever... there. <laughs> but did you... But did... It must have felt surreal. Well, yeah, it did. But, um, you know, I'd actually argued for a coalition Labour Party, along with Paddy. But Labour didn't want it. And the numbers weren't there, really. And the, number, the numbers, but, you know, listen, I'm a centre-left politi politician. I thought we could do it, but, you know, with a goodwill, but, you know, it wasn't to be. So anyway, I was there uh, working with the Tories. The, the difference then was, this is quite a different Tory party. You know, the, 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 the proposition that we had in the coalition agreement was much more to the centre and the Liberal centre than anything we'd seen from the Tories, whether it's on climate, whether it's on, um, you know, taking the low paid out tax, whether it's on pupil premium for disadvantaged kids. You know, we could get, we got about 70% of our manifesto in the coalition agreement, not everything, as we, as we all know, to our cost, but we got stuff in. Uh, and then we just fought, we fought with them. I mean, I fought Eric Pickles over wind farms almost every day. I, I said to wind farm not verbally. I mean, uh, well, I'll tell you not one physically. I had talked to no. I had one conversation uh, with him. I'll tell you about. But first, I should finish the story about the wind farms. He was trying to stop wind farms. Uh, uh, well, in my view, abusing his planning planning powers. So I suggested to wind farm developers they judicially reviewed him. So he had one camp cabinet minister t telling uh, uh, investors to go and take another cabinet minister to court. You know, so. No one can say I didn't find them. And I had, this, I had this big argument with Pickles over some regulations I wanted. And these are regulations basically to tackle fuel poverty. Because in the private renter sector, a lot of landlords, because they don't pay the energy bills, don't insulate the homes very well. And the tenants aren't going to insulate the homes because they're going to move. So actually, the leakiest homes in our housing stock are in the private renter sector. So I brought in a proposal for a new law to require landlords to get to a minimum energy efficiency level, um, which would be good for the climate, good for jobs, good for the tenants, and particularly good for fuel poverty. So it was a win-win-win. And we consulted on it, we great. Pickles was trying to stop me. And one conversation I had with him, he said to me, Ed me old chum, uh, I wasn't his old chum, but you know, Ed me old chum, regulations are communist. Regulations are communist. And I said to him, Eric, thou shalt not kill is a regulation. <laughs> and thou shalt not kill came in before Karl Marx. <laughs> he didn't like that. <laughs> you, you had to fight them. You had to take them on. And I, by the way, I've got my regulation. And I'll tell you how I got my regulation. I found in my bot, red box one night, I found something 
which I wasn't that bothered about. And I knew they'd really want it because about oil and gas, they would really want it. Um, and they weren't, he was blocking my regulation on fuel poverty, on energy efficiency. And so I said to my uh, private secretary, what happens if I don't sign this? And he looked at me a bit weird because it was, it was something that he would have expected me to be okay. It wasn't that dramatic. It wasn't particularly new or anything. And he said, well, if you don't sign it, Minister, then it can't happen. And I said, well, go tell the Tories I'm not signing it until I get my, my minimum energy efficiency regulation. Uh, and they went bananas. I was bringing government into disrepute. It was terrible. And I said, well, give me my energy efficiency regulation so I tackle full put. Then you can have it. You know, this wasn't in the newspapers, right? Because it couldn't be. But I was fighting them all the time. Fighting them for liberal democrat policies, liberal democrat values. And, you know, I just say to people who get worried about what we did in the coalition, look at what we achieved. Look what happened when we left. Does anyone think that the government since 2015 has been better? Come on, it's been a disaster. These are shambolic, hopeless, disgusting, disgraceful people who are letting our country down. Can't stand them. But, you know, we, we achieve stuff. Because, do you, I mean, do you think then some Lib Dems are a bit harsh on their own party for the coalition experience? Yeah. And is that, is that just born of a desire for the pain to end? They just kind of want to forget it ever happened. And even going back over it, including a, a, a sort of SWOT analysis where you say, actually, well, we got some stuff right and we got other stuff wrong, is, is too sort of emotionally stressful for people. Well, the thing I say is if you look at why we haven't been doing well in the last... Uh, election two, it's nothing to do with the coalition. In the general election review that I uh, co-commissioned, had 61 pages, loads of conclusions, hardly mentioned the coalition, and it showed what we've been doing wrong. And there's this, there's this sort of school of thought that says, oh, we're not doing very well because of the coalition. No, not true. Dramatically oversimplification. And the dangerous oversimplification, if you think it's all about that, then you'll miss the big picture. And you've got to remind them, that Vince Cable was our leader. He was a coalition cabinet of five years. And as our leader in May 2019, we got our best ever local election results and our best European election results. So people voted for us with a, a coalition leader. So it's complete and utter arrant nonsense. And, and, and it's dangerous because we have got to focus on what we need to do to win again and what we need to do to beat the Tories again. And that is having a very clear message. That's what the review says. And it goes back to, it, gets, it sounds a bit marketing, it goes back to brand. You know, people have an idea of what the Labour Party stands for, for the many, not the few. They have an idea what the, what the Tory party stands for. They have no bloody idea what we stand for. And because we fought the last election on Brexit, and that's sort of, you know, gone on its way, the left is saying, so what guy, you, what guy do you stand for now? And so my obsession as leader, if I... Um, have the honour to do that, is to make sure that people know, instinctively know the answer to why vote Liberal Democrat. And it will be about the environment and the green gender and the green economy. It will be about a fairer society. And it will be, frankly, about a more caring society. Um, and I think that's where we can, you know, where we can make real, real ground. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you contrast the, the conservative party that you went to coalition with with the conservative party now, you, know, you, can, you can see how people say, oh, they've got worse and Boris Johnson compared to David Cameron and, and Brexit, the values around that. But also during this crisis, and obviously they've got a lot of things wrong, They've effectively paid the country's wages. They sound like they're not going to repeat austerity. It sounds like they're going to get used to living with a high level of, of government borrowing to prevent austerity again. I mean, is, isn't there a case that this Tory prime minister is, is more liberal than the one you served alongside? No, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> or is, or his administration is. Listen circumstance and accident and catastrophe don't change someone's philosophy um there is a question about whether boris johnson has a philosophy other than boris johnson i'm not a fan and i I can't let you get away with glossing over the tragedy that has happened in our care homes because i i am both deeply sad about it and i'm i'm bloody angry actually he said in his sort of pompous way, protect the NHS. Like anyone disagreed with that, you know. And then he forgot the care homes. And we, I mean, my wonderful colleague, Manira Wilson, MP for Twickenham, was getting up and saying in March, what about the care homes? What about the PPE? What about the testing? And they ignored it. And we've seen the consequences. And it's this real problem in the Tories. They, and to some extent, some part in the Labour Party, but mainly the Tories, they don't see that NHS and social care are absolutely integrated, have to be. And they resisted that because they, they don't really care, if we're honest. And um, for me, that is an area where we need to be really strong on. We need to be the voice of carers, the voice of the caring profession. I have to say, I speak with a degree of personal commitment to this. I, um, I was a young carer. Um, my dad died when I was four and my mum became terminally ill cancer when I was 12 and my brother and I nursed her uh, till she died when I was 15. Uh, so I experienced you know, quite a dramatic thing as a, as a kid and um, you know I saw, I saw how great the NHS was and I also saw how rubbish caring was. <laughs> got my, almost got no support. And then I was brought up by my gran uh, and then my gran became frail and I was her main carer for a decade. Uh, and now my wife and I have lovely, two lovely children but our son is severely disabled and he can't walk or talk. He's gone undiagnosed neurological condition he's absolutely wonderful but he needs 24 7 care so in my personal life i've I've done a lot of caring and i've seen the the good sides of our system and i've seen the weak sides and i've and through my constituency work and more widely i've seen how many people are doing a lot of caring roles they're either getting a rubbish carer's allowance which is 67 pounds 25p a week for 35 hours work you know do the maths or 
a vast majority of people aren't paid at all. Millions of unpaid carers. And if we want to live in a fairer society and a more caring society, we've got to treat care staff in care homes properly, unpaid carers properly, people who are struggling. Why don't we? What's wrong with us? And so I'm not going to let Boris Johnson get away with failing the care staff. They've just done this, this visa regime. They've excluded people who are social care workers. What's that about? I, I, I'm afraid they have, they have got to be held to account. It's one of the reasons I've championed the inquiry. You know, um, I was the first uh, party leader, I think I'm still the only party leader to, to argue for an independent public inquiry as soon as possible. My Prime Minister's question last week, I got him to agree to one in principle. So he's now in principle in favour of, of an independent inquiry. But it can't come soon enough, A, to learn the lessons, and B, to hold this lot to account. Because I think they've been shambolic. I think they've been negligent. I think they've been incompetent. And um, I think the British people deserve to know the truth. Everyone thought. I've, I've, I've calmed down. I've calmed down a bit. But well, well, but the, but the, the passion is good because what I was going to ask is Brexit was the issue that kind of inflamed liberal left, you know, usually calm people who don't go on marches and don't go on protests. Mm were triggered by Brexit. This pandemic actually probably has the potential to, to unleash something far more profound. And do you think that the way the government has handled it, um, or, and other governments in the UK as well have handled it, is something that will actually, do you think it will not make Britain more liberal or left wing, but do you think it will politicise a new generation of people to care about the sorts of things that you've outlined there? I hope so. I really, really hope so. I hope people you know, value their family, value their neighbours, value their community, value um, the NHS, care workers, people who drive the buses, everyone. I just hope we value everyone better because that's the way to a liberal society where you, know, you, you do pe treat people with equal respect and you do think it's wrong when we have gross inequality. Um, and we have seen people helping out amazingly so. So, you know, I, I'm a, you've got to be an optimist if you're a Liberal Democrat, haven't you? Because I'm an optimist. But um, I think it's too early days to know whether that's going to be the case. I mean, there's so many things going on. Obviously, the, the most worrying thing is the pandemic's not gone away. Uh, the next most worrying thing is the job losses and the business collapses. Um, and quite how that's going to impact on everyone's lives and change politics. I don't, I don't know. I don't, uh, I find it very difficult to read. I think it's so uncertain. Um, and I don't think centre-left politicians should be complacent and think it'll, everyone will now come to us. I think that would be, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to make our case. We've got to fight our case. We've got to show where they've gone wrong and, and, and offer something practical that's better. And um, I, I think, I think we can do that. Um, I, I, I I'm actually, I am genuinely optimistic about the chances, partly because they have been so shambolic. I can't believe many people think they've handled it well. Just can't believe that. Just on, on, on liberalism and what it means and what it means to you, um, and how you would define it under your leadership and, and how moving beyond 2020, you know, the Lib Dems sell liberalism to, to the people and what that would mean on different issues. On things like the smoking ban, 
you were against a total ban in, in pubs and clubs because you said it was a bit too nanny state. W- would you still hold that view now? And what will be the next challenge? You know, what is the next smoking man? Is it, is it a sugar tax or, you know, extension? Well, let, let, let's, be, let's be clear where I was on the, on the smoking ban because I was John Stuart Mill, you know, uh, the great liberal philosopher, where he worried about the harm you do to someone else. So I was up for the smoking ban 96%. But the so I voted for the vast majority of the smoking ban legislation, and I think it's done a lot of good. I think it's uh, helped people give up smoking. I think it's prevented secondary illnesses from secondary uh, fumes. But the bit that I thought should stay as a classic liberal was if you were all smokers together in a smoking club and you wanted to smoke together without any member of staff having to come in to serve you, you know, food or your or your drink. Um, so it was only smokers voluntarily would be smoking the fumes. I thought that actually they should be allowed to. So in other words, you're protecting anyone who didn't want to smoke to, to smoke the, uh, to get the inhale the fumes. You're protecting staff, but you were saying there's this bit of freedom over here. And it was actually I think at the time it was called the railway carriage amendment because the idea was you'd have a railway carriage which was completely separate from the pub and people would go in there and you'd only go in there to smoke. And to be honest, it would have been a better because what happens now is people stand outside pubs and they're loud, you know, they can be a bit loud and they can create unsocial behavior. If you done what we, what I propose, not only would you protect a bit of freedom, but I think it would be better for the community. So um, I think that just proves that if you stand up for freedom, at those sort of tests, at those sort of moments, you can still get the benefits for the public health because you can get 96%. And you also, you don't have these unintended consequences of people crowding out outside pubs. On something like obesity, which feels like it's the next big public health challenge. Well, before right, I missed that, Matt. What, what, what do you say that? I missed the bit. Let's say, for, you know, if obesity is going to be the next big public health yeah, drive, yeah. and obviously there'll be all sorts of stuff that comes out of COVID, but actually one of the things that seems to have been that that, that weight uh, can, can perhaps play a part in that. What is the liberal answer to something like obesity? Well, first of all, it starts education uh, and, and information. And while that has been tried... The question is, has it been tried well enough? And if you look at public health campaigns, I don't think they've been anywhere near strong enough. Uh, and I think on the back, back of COVID and where you were saying, maybe we've got a bit more ability to get the message over. Um, and lots of things that are, are there, but haven't really been mainstreamed enough. Take that amazing experiment where they took kids to every day, kids at a certain schools would go and run a mile. Um, and how it not just improved their health and their weight, but it improved their attention span education. They seem to be you know, more awake, more, more with it. Um, so, so you know, I still remain with that liberal optimism that through education, through you know, um, good information, you can move a lot of people um, a long way. Your question, though, I guess, still relates to the sugar tax and that sort of thing. And should you um, uh, go for that sort of measure? Again, I think that's not a bad. I'm not against that. You know, if you want to have the sugar, you pay the tax. You know, it's like 
we, we don't ban cigarettes we tax them but what about and, things like junk food would you would you would you have like maximum contents of salt or trans fats or things like that would you would you put a premium on mcdonald's and greggs and places and I'm not a nutritional food expert. I'm probably the last person to, uh, to give you some detailed analysis of it. All I'd say is I am open to proper debate on public health, where we recognise, as you're suggesting, that obesity is a big issue. And how can we improve that for people? Um, and, you know, um, like others, I need to lose a few pounds myself. So I'm not going to be... <laughs> it certainly wasn't personal. I wasn't, um, <laughs> I wasn't, uh, I wasn't suggesting that. But it's just interesting to see where, you know, when you think about things like our attitude to narcotics and uh, cigarettes and, and alcohol, what are the next challenges going to be? And, and how could we approach those differently to, to how we've approached those things? I mean, on drugs, I mean, I used to work for the Labour Party. And we used to have a lot of fun making Lib Dem attack leaflets about all the weird and wonderful things various Lib Dem. Oh, it was you, was it? It was friends of mine in more senior positions <laughs> dig out quotes of you know obscure Lib Dem councillors about wanting to legalise heroin or whatever. I mean, wh- where do you stand on 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 drugs? Then, I mean, I, I presume you're in favour of legalising cannabis, but what about things like? ecstasy and cocaine uh i'm not in favor um i i think when you're looking at these sorts of issues you've got to take people with you you've got to make sure that everyone has the understanding the ability to, and the the wherewithal to to be able to um go that to that next level in a safe way and you need to build the evidence up to know that that's possible and you know um the party has taken a huge amount of evidence looked at all the international examples whether it's in netherlands canada portugal and i think arrived at a very sensible set of approaches on cannabis where uh, essentially we would have a very regulated market we'd um raise quite a lot of money and We'd use that in uh, drugs education, drugs rehab, the police. Um, and we think you break up a lot of the criminal gangs. And one of the attractions to me about the policy as actually is it's what the criminals don't want you to do. And I don't know if you put that in your leaflets, by the way. Uh, <laughs> criminals don't, don't want this. And uh, for me, um, Protecting our young people is what it's about. And a lot of them get preyed on by these very nasty uh, drug uh, bosses and their, and their runners. And if you can break that, then you, you've got a major improvement in society and the safety of our young people. So it's, it's that approach I think the Liberals are taking uh, and it's the right, the right approach. But I don't think you then, you know, go dramatically to the other side you, you, you you've got to be evidence-based because these are very very serious matters and um uh i don't think you can just do it by you know quoting um your favorite liberal philosopher i have lots of favorite liberal philosophers john stuart mill um i'm a big john rules fan actually the veil of ignorance you know create your favorite society and you get a much more egalitarian society from that rulesian liberalism 
so I'm I'm in favour of uh, of uh, some of the messages from the liberal philosophers, but you you also have got to take evidence into account. And you know, one of the thing, great things about the Liberal Democrats is we are we love our evidence based policies. <laughs> Um, you, uh, talking of evidence, actually, let's talk police evidence because you you reported Nigel Farage to the police recently. Um, yeah. What's the latest? I haven't heard back yet. Good, good reminder. I'm glad you reminded me. Uh, you know, um, you won't be surprised, but there's not a lot of love between uh, Liberal Democrats and Mr. Farage, or Farage, or whatever we're supposed to call him now. Um, and um, and he gets on his high horse about the rule of uh, law and order and you know, parliamentary sovereignty and so on. Well, he was, it looks like he was breaking the law. So this was, this was when he posted a picture of himself in the pub, but he'd been in America um, the, the sort of fortnight before, but basically there wasn't enough time in between that he'd effectively had to self-isolate for, and he'd, he'd basically broken quarantine and gone to the pub. Yeah, that's right. He'd been at a Trump rally. So he'd, he'd got uh, special... That's right, in Tulsa. Yeah, he got special treatment by the American immigration authorities. So most people wouldn't have been able to go to this Trump do. He got special permission. He went there. And as it so happened, it was a massive increase in uh, COVID cases directly after this rally in that particular vicinity, in that area. And then he comes back to the UK and has his picture of his pint. And most people who did all the analysis says, well, he couldn't have gone back and gone into quarantine and obeyed the rules and it's a bit like Dominic Cummings and you know some people didn't like what I did but I didn't care you know um he dishes it out a lot doesn't he so if he he shouldn't dish it out if he can't take it that's what I say did you ever encounter Dominic Cummings when you're in the cabinet I didn't actually no I've got friends who did uh and um I think it's fair to say he didn't like us and we didn't like him <laughs> That's true of a lot of Tories as well, isn't it? I mean, he doesn't really have a lot of friends in the party apart from the, the ultimate friend that matters to him. Yeah, I mean, I, he's not someone I've studied in detail. I mean, he, he's supposed to be very bright, and I'm no reason to suggest he isn't. But, um, you know, what he did uh, over the lockdown was pretty scandalous, actually. There he was, the heart of government, the heart of government, setting the rules for the rest of us. And he goes in a clear breach of them. And he goes into the Downing Street garden, tries to make out he didn't. And he gets away with it. I mean, I, I think that was a bit of a turning point in the, in the government's reputation on this, you know. I think people were giving them the benefit of the doubt. And I think that Cummings uh, episode, scandal, just revealed that actually there is one rule for them and another rule for us. And, and they just try and get away with it. And it showed the weakness of Boris Johnson, actually. He clearly depends on this bloke. And, you know, this bloke's unelected, got some, shall we say, interesting views, but never been put to the British people. And he seems to, almost Svengali-like, have Johnson in his, in his, in his trance. And um, I think people should be worried about that. Let's just come back to the contest before we finish. You're, you're the front runner, you're the odds-on favourite. That can put a pressure on a candidate, particularly when there's only two of you. Do you, do you feel like you're looking over your shoulder? Do you think, you know, you, you, in a way, it's better to be the underdog these days? In a campaign, what you need to do is focus on your message. So it's vision, experience and leadership. Uh, and I want a greener, fairer, more caring society. 
And uh, any successful campaign has message discipline, whatever the question. So thank you for the question. You can ask another way and I'll just tell you about vision experience leadership in a greener, fairer, more caring society. And um, what's funny is Layla's copying, Layla keeps copying me, it's quite funny. Uh, she, her messaging has changed <laughs> during, the, during the campaign, which I take as a compliment. But do you, do you um, well, that's it. Do you take it as a compliment or do you, do you start to get, not paranoid, but concerned? Do you think, oh, actually, she's, she's woken up to this a bit and she's now trying to steal my clothes a bit? I mean, I've been in politics too long to, to where you've got to play your own game, you know? Um, uh, my core message, I guess, in the position to vision experience leadership is all about winning. I want the Liberal Democrats to win again. You know, I fought seven elections. I won six, not a bad track record. When I won Surbiton in Kingston and Surbiton in uh, 1997 by 56 votes after three recounts, you know, I was the first Liberal Democrat, I think I'm the only Liberal Democrat MP in the party's history to win a seat that we didn't target. I was number 106 on the target list and we, 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 we won 47. So um, people going around, Kingston and Surbiton, where's that? You know, you know. Um, and um, I'm really proud that we did that. And then the next election, um, thanks to squeezing the Labour vote, thank you uh, all Labour Party members, even if you write dodgy leaflets, uh, you know, um, I got the largest majority, 15,676, achieved a general election in absolute terms, to be precise. So I do know a bit about campaigning and beating Tories. And um, I think that's what the party wants. They want someone who knows how to beat Tories. Uh, and I do. And I love beating them in government. I love beating them in opposition. Um, I don't want to sound aggressive or anything, but, you know, I'm in politics to get more progressive liberal policies. And the way to do that in the UK um, is to beat the Tories. So I think the vast majority of Liberal Democrats are thirsty. They're crying out for a leader who, who's got the vision, you know, that being a fairer, more caring society, I might have mentioned that before, but it's also got the experience and the judgment to, to fight them and to make sure we win at local government level, which is absolutely crucial. It's a building block. Uh, and then take them on at national level. And um, I'm really excited by the prospect. And because I won't have someone like Corbyn creating collateral damage, uh, and I think Starmer could well be the real deal, then I think it's even more exciting. Have you spoken to any of your predecessors, uh, obviously Charles Kennedy and Paddy Ashton, two titans of British politics, are sadly no longer with us. But have you spoken to Tim Farron or, or Joe Swinson or, or Nick Clegg or Ming Campbell? Have you, uh, um, uh, not, uh, have, have you spoken to any of them and, and, and taken advice? All of them, all of them. Um, and I'm delighted to say that Ming Campbell and Tim Farron have come out in favor of my uh, candidacy. Uh, Vince and Nick are, and Joe are keeping their counsel, which is often the case. Uh, but um, you know, I'm, I'm good friends with all of them and I admire all of them. And one of the things that, that I've got, I think is experience. You know, I, I've, uh, <laughs> sorry to be, um, and, uh, I think that experience comes from having watched and, and worked for many leaders and seen, you know, their successes and their, their failures and their, their good judgments and their poor judgments. And, you know, I've almost got an encyclopedia of knowledge uh, from 30 years active in the party, 20 years in parliament, which I want to bring to the job. And 
you know, politics is a far more subtle game, a nuanced game, sophisticated game than people think. You know, people who write in the papers and who comment on Twitter, they think it's all, you know, dead easy, black and white. It's not. It's much more subtle. And you need to plan ahead. I mean, um, many years ago, before I discovered girls, I was a chess uh, player. And um, I used to love playing chess. And, you know, you think 10, 15, 20 moves ahead. That's how you, you won a game. And um, in government, that's how I beat the Tories, particularly Osborne, because he, he hated my agenda. And the only way I beat him, he had so many other things to do as chancellor. I could focus in on my agenda and I just played, played get many moves ahead of him. And, you know, I, I think um, if I become the leader, um, I'll be thinking about not just 2024, I'll be thinking about 2026 and 2028. And, and what happens because you, you, you you've, yes, you've got to play the tactical game, but you've got to have that strategic big picture uh, because this is so important. Politics is not a game, right? You know, um, some people think it's all a hobby. It's, it's so important. And, um, you know, in years gone by, I say this when I go to primary and secondary schools in my constituency, I'm trying to explain what it is to, 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 to children. I probably, probably get told off by the teachers but what I say is you know, we used to play politics with armies you know kings and queens and princes and princes who used to fight each other for power fortunately we don't do that anymore we have democracy but it's still serious and it's a privilege if you do get elected and you've got that power um, but you've got to use that with wisdom with insight with sensitivity and um, you've got to realize that you're very privileged and you've got to you've got to try to work for the big picture and not just the short-term headline and what worries me about our world today we have all these nationalists these xenophobes these populists um, who are using social media and other means russian money whatever it is and they're playing with us and those of us on the, the liberal progressive side of politics have got to wise up. And you know, if we think it's all about, you know, waving a magic wand, there's a quick fix, just not. This is a massive, massive historic battle we're engaged in. Now, for, for quite a few years, it looked like liberalism, the small L, was winning across the world. Socialism, political liberalism, economic liberalism, you know, personal. It was beginning to, 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 to take hold. And we got complacent. And it went too far in some places, particularly globalization probably went too far. Um, and we're getting a bit of a, a backlash. And we've got to realize that. And it, yeah, I think that some people think, oh, don't worry, you know, it'll go around, we'll go back to status ante sometime. No, 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 just look at the history books. This could be a big change in our world, which could, could, could last for 30, 40, 50 years. And nothing is more important than this fight for, for this liberal value and this, these liberal small L, you know, because I think there are liberals, by the way, in all political parties. Yes. Small L. Um, and across the world and we've got to wise up and 
I don't actually have all the answers. I know we've got to use emotion more and not just evidence-based policies that Liberal Democrats are so keen on. We've got to use some emotion. And we've also got to be optimistic enough to know we can do it. Um, I'm going to be really rude. The doorbell's just gone. No, that's okay. I had to finish anyway. So that's, that's, um, that, is, that, is, that was right on time. We've, we've done our okay. time. Yes, of course. I'm so sorry. My lips got someone waiting at the door. It's okay. It's fine. <laughs> Ed, it's been a real pleasure. A real pleasure. Come back to Surbiton. And the pub I'll take you to is the Antelope. That's a great pub. Very, very good it's pub. The, the one that brews its own beer out the back. Yeah. Brilliant pub. I'll see you down there. Yeah, you're, you're on for a pint in the Antelope? Absolutely. More than one. <laughs> okay. Cheers. Cheers. Well, there you go. Ed Davey, what a pleasure it's been talking to both Ed and Layla about their plans for the Lib Dem leadership and also just finding about who they are. And I just thought, uh, when he got really passionate about being a carer, I never realised he'd spent so much of his life as a carer. And um, I don't think he has to apologise for getting passionate about that. He's got huge amounts of personal experience. Um, and... Uh, it's the right thing to be passionate about. So it's been a real pleasure talking to Layla and Ed. If you are a member of the Lib Dems, we're not going to find out who your new leader is for about another five or six weeks, I think. So um, who knows what the world will look like um, by then. Um, but I'll be back next week with a different guest um, on a different topic, probably from a different party. So email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Let me know where you listen, any feedback, any guest suggestions. And of course, if you can find it within your soul to just spend a couple of seconds leaving a iTunes an iTunes review that um you know the, the positive ones uh, are what help other people find the podcast so bear that in mind um and I shall see you next week Ta-ra. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.